Please state your name for the record. Nathaniel Irons. I'm Chris Parrish. I'm Brent Simmons. You're listening to The Record. The Record brings you all the stories you should know about the Apple development community. This is Season 1, Seattle, before the iPhone. Today we are recording at the offices of the Omni Group in Seattle. Our guest is Nathaniel Irons. Nat has worked in Apple developer relations, uh, then as a web development consultant, then as IT director at The Stranger, which is a Seattle alt-weekly, and is now QA manager at Black Pixel. Nat's good to have you. Thanks very much for having me. So uh, what got you involved with the Mac to begin with? Uh, I, it all goes back to my dad. Uh, he bought one in 1984, and not long afterwards, I was playing Load Runner. I think I was seven or eight around that time. Uh, that was a blissful period that lasted until my little sister deleted Load Runner, so, <laughs> no. so so that she could watch Oscar the Grouch come out of the trash can. Oh no! <laughs> uh, oh, man, th- this caused a rift in our relationship, which we did patch up some years later. Okay. <laughs> some years though, it took a while. It took a while. Right? Bad, yeah. I, it still wow. tears at me. Load Runner was a great game. I remember playing that a ton. That and Dark Castle Castle are two of the main things that I take away from that. uh, Was it nine-inch monochrome screen? Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it was it was the only computer in the house uh, all through. Basically, I've actually never owned Windows hardware. Good for you. So yes, I've maintained my streak, and at this point, I see very little reason to uh, why would you change now? Yeah, Yeah, it's hard to imagine what would happen. The irony being that Macs are great Windows hardware. They are. Yeah, I I do have. Just don't think of them that way. I do have a Windows license uh, that a client bought a while ago, which, as far as I know, I never actually used on that or any other project. Uh, Yeah. Because yeah, why would you? So uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, north of Boston in Massachusetts until uh, I was uh, eight, I think, and then we, uh, my parents split up, and we all packed up and moved to the Bay Area. Mm. Uh, so I lived in San Francisco uh, until sixth grade or so, and then I moved to Berkeley, where I stayed till the end of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, still got family there, so some ties to the Bay Area, but I went to college in Western Massachusetts and basically bounced back and forth uh, between the two sides of the country until I got tired of East Coast summers and moved to Seattle. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So you've hung out in uh, what we might call very liberal places, uh, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. Seattle, San Francisco, Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I didn't nice. learn to drive until my mid-20s because I always lived in places that had yeah. in, enlightened public transportation for the most yeah, part. Yeah, that's nice. Seattle actually still is not quite as enlightened as one would wish, but... Yeah, I, I oh, moved well. here just in time to see Tim Iman start to kneecap the, oh, the geez, statewide yeah, system. Yeah. And that guy, that guy. man. Mm-hmm. We do a whole podcast about that. <laughs> yeah, we could. <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to participate. <laughs> uh, cool. So um, I think the first time we met was probably like 2001-ish. At I think we were at Sit and Spin for a blogger meetup. But I'm not totally positive. But I think that we met, and I think I remember asking you about uh, Bumpo. Bumpo. That's what I remember. Yeah. Bumpo. Yeah, that that came up. Um, that was. You still blog at Bumpo.net, right? Technically, yeah. I'm, I'm on the uh, the sort of the one a year schedule, right, which sure. I've been meaning to do something about for about five years. Um, but yeah, it's a domain that I grabbed in the late '90s after leaving Apple and deciding I needed to put out a shingle of some kind, and it's always just sort of been the personal domain. Uh, 
mostly because it's almost impossible to spell over the phone. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a reference to the uh, James Fenmore Cooper Leatherstocking books, which were uh, favorite of my grandfather, and I had them around. And uh, then Michael Mann made the pretty darn good uh, Daniel Day Lewis movie. Oh, you know, I've never seen that. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's it's Daniel Day Lewis. He's oh uh, yeah, he's that awesome. guy's incredible. Um, yeah, I haven't read them since I was in my teens, but mm-hmm. I have fond memories. And uh, the the character's nickname I haven't even gotten to that is uh, is Natty Bumpo. Yep. Uh, and as a as a very small child, Natty was the the sort of the family nickname, which uh, I rebelled against once the other kids realized that it rhymed with fatty. <laughs> uh, I, I, I wasn't even fat, really, so it didn't still, make any sense. But it was a, it rhymed. So if I, it rhymes, it must be I true. I was stuck. Um, and I sort of reclaimed it later on and uh, figured if you're going to, as long as you're reclaiming any natty, you might as well have an appropriate domain name to put yeah, at the end of it. Yeah, indeed. I remember the time thinking, oh, awesome kind of obscure literary reference because yeah, kids these days don't know James Fenimore Cooper. But, kids uh, these days. I know. I know. <laughs> they don't even know the Michael Mann movie. Yeah, you, well, you, you haven't even seen it. Well, that's a movie. <laughs> it's, got, it's, it's a great soundtrack. Yeah. I, I, it's right. been a few with Alan Stowe. It's good stuff. All right. Is that Last of the Mohicans? Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't think I actually said that. What did you do on your Mac in those early days when, besides the Loadrunner? Uh, it was nothing terribly productive. I was, I was not one of those kids that uh, fell into programming. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I was using it for much more than schoolwork and game. I mean, I, I never got into games enough to, to really crave a Windows machine, which probably means I was never really into games. Um, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't until high school that I started using it for you know, much c- c- communication purposes beyond AOL chat rooms, mm-hmm. really. Um, and in high school, I stumbled into the uh, BMUG Berkeley Mac user group, mm, cool. which was a formative early experience. They were upgrading their BBS from uh, something textual to first class. Uh, and I heard about that through some sort of grapevine and walked in off the street and uh, wound up standing at the desk of a guy whose uh, BMUG job title was shortstop. Uh, his name was Tim Holmes, who I knew at the time. He had been a, uh, a substitute teacher in seventh and eighth grade. He took over science class for a chunk of a year when uh, the, the regular teacher got sick. Uh, and it was just, he's one, one of those amazing teachers from your youth who mm-hmm. totally changes the the course of your existence. Um, he later told my dad that he thought I was either going to go do great things or wind up in jail. <laughs> uh, and so he gave me errands to do that were not... Not pe- criminal activity. N- well, not pedagogically justified, but <laughs> which he saw as keeping me out of trouble. <laughs> and he was probably right. Um, yeah, we, 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 we could tell he was going to be somewhere on the premises because he had a purple Harley at the time that he would park mm. close enough to the building that you'd see it as you were walking nice. in. Mm. So I walk into BMUG and there's Tim Holmes and I say, oh, I, I actually know this guy. Um, so I fell into BMUG and it was a, a great social resource. I did some writing for them for a few years. They had this infamously huge uh, newsletter, which was really a, a, a large soft cover book that they published once a year. Um, and that was really sort of the, the formative early Mac experience. Yeah. You know, uh, BMUG was a legendary user group. I mean, I, I believe it was 
really the yeah the biggest yeah for a good I, I run have there. to believe that and yeah no matter where you were if you were into the Mac you knew about them and wished you could go but yeah but yeah you don't live in Berkeley so you don't except you did so yeah. it was very cool it was walking distance so yeah. I was lucky oh that's great so at a typical meeting uh, how many how many people would there be. Uh, I remember mostly the atypical meetings uh, uh, where there were a few hundred. Um, it was, I think, it was more, more typically in the the couple dozen range. Mm -hmm. um, but most of my interaction with it was modem based online, even, mm -hmm. even back right. then. Um, I remember uh, they had Heidi Roizen at one point, uh, who was the what sort of evangelist was she? she? I think she was probably the first evangelist I ever met. Um, I have her autograph. She introduced me to the phrase, I bleed in six colors. Which, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Blew, blew my young mind. Mm -hmm. um, Let me back up and say something. You know, so some of our younger listeners may have no idea what a user group is. And so oh perhaps gosh, clarifying that before the internet, the only way those of us who are into computers or the Mac or something like that could find each other and talk was at these user group meetings, mm -hmm. right? It was. Uh, how did we have those meetings without Twitter to organize? I don't in the first know. Place? I honestly don't know how I found out yeah. about any of the ones I ever went to. I, I mean, it was you know, maybe at the local computer shop or something. I don't know, but yeah, had to be, but it was a yeah. big deal. I mean, that's yeah. how you organized and and mm -hmm. uh, found out new things, and uh, and the BBSs were a big part of that as well, right? Yeah, I, I was lucky from my point of view as a not terribly social young person uh, that the that they were making a big investment in the BBS and it yeah. was graphical and sexy yeah. and stuff yep. I was interested in. Um, I, I went through a little phase of first class administration for a few local companies and I'm not sure that company still exists, but it was a great tool for a brief shining period mm. um, before broadband was yeah. really a thing outside yeah. of college campuses. That was one of the major advantages of going to college was you get an Ethernet cable, you can plug it into your computer and it's, it's just there. You can play Bolo. <laughs> Bolo was a big one, right, yeah. on the campuses. Uh, Spectre was, did you ever play that Oh, one? yeah. Spectre yeah, was I, a big one for I, me. I, that, that was one of the first uh, yeah. iOS re-releases that I was really excited about. Oh, I didn't about. even realize that oh, yeah, you, I you can get, you that can get Spectre on the iPad. I'll play it right now. I'm not very good. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bolo Stewart, I, 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 one of the great regrets of my life is uh, not really a great regret of my life. One of the small regrets of my life is not telling Stuart Cheshire uh, when I bumped into him at WWC a couple of years ago what an influence Bolo was. Yeah. It's just mm -hmm. a fantastic game, which as far as I know was really just a, uh, a stalking horse for his PhD thesis. <laughs> you should describe the game, actually. Uh, to Bolo, Bolo was a, a networked tank game at a time when networks were uh, rare and elusive creatures. Um, it had some element of resource harvesting. You could send your little uh, biped out of the tank to chop down trees and, and convert them into more useful things than trees. Um, but really, you were driving around a little tank and shooting other little tanks. Uh, and if you were lucky, you could actually shoot other tanks, little bipeds, which crippled them in ways that I can no longer right. really clearly remember. But yeah, it was uh, it was fantastic. Those early network games were amazing to me. Like the, when you could get multiple people playing at the same time. Uh, I remember I was taking a class on virtual reality. It was this like journalism intercession class in college, and uh, I had to do a presentation or something and. Uh, I, I used Spectre. I dragged all the students to the Mac lab, and I'm like, all right, we're all going to load into this game, and there's going to be this virtual world that we all have some sort of representation in to sort of you know, drive home the idea, like, what do people mean by virtual reality? What are you talking about? Mm. You know? 
I just that early connectivity was amazing when it, when it could happen. Yeah. Mac was really, even though it wasn't a gaming machine, so many Macs were networked that I think a lot of these things sprung up on the Mac at, uh, in the beginning. And Stuart Cheshire, of course, later made his better-known reputation as the father of uh, Bonjour and Zero right. Conf networking, yep. which is the, the the reason a lot of this stuff works as well as it does. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. And yeah. what's he done lately? Uh, I Honestly, I would... I mean, I, maybe, you know, after Zero Conf, you're done. Exactly. I'm good. He can put up his feet and do nothing <laughs> yeah. for as long. I, I'd still... Pay him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I believe he's still at Apple. He did uh, a, a, a zero conf overview at WWC a couple of years ago. Oh wow! Um, but I couldn't tell you what what all he's. Every time I hear now. his name, I think of that. I think of the Cheshire Cat yeah. and Stuart Little at the same time. Well, hmm. <laughs> that's that's quite a tension. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Speaking of the Chester Cat, did you guys ever play that early Mac game, Alice, that Steve Caps did? No, another I don't one. Think so, no. All right. If you haven't, it was weird that Apple distributed this game for a little while. Like. Uh, huh. But um, look it up on the Wikipedia sometime. You'll be surprised. Well, we should pause for a moment here in talking to Nat and thank the newest sponsor of the record, Igloo. Igloo makes an internet that you'll actually like. Now, when you think in internet, you're probably thinking SharePoint, or you might be thinking SharePoint. I've used SharePoint at a previous job. Let me tell you, not a fan. I like what SharePoint does. you know, it makes uh, communication and uh, file sharing and all that stuff possible, but the user interface is just, well, leaves a lot to be desired. And in fact, it's, it's, um, it's a little maze-like and, and not, exactly, uh, not exactly built for people to enjoy. Igloo's different. Igloo's an internet you'll actually like. You'll, you know, you just will. Let me tell you. It's built with easy-to-use integrated apps like shared calendars, Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, and more. Everything you need is built in, and everything is social. So if you upload a file or write a corporate blog post, your team can share it, comment on it, rate it, like it, and even manage versions. The whole idea is just to get your whole company communicating better. And you can try it. It's free for up to 10 people. It's pretty cool, right? Free? Get, Get your whole team on board. Uh, maybe your company's bigger than 10, you can start with a small team. Get them on board for free, free to use, up to 10 people. And they'll do custom demos and proof of concepts and everything if you have a bigger business and you're thinking about using them. Uh, you can learn more at igloosoftware.com slash the record. They call it an internet you'll actually like. I'll say that one more time. It's an internet you'll actually like. No kidding. So the... Question from way back was uh, what 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 was I doing with the Mac uh, right. and that was it games and and communication up through uh, college when I started getting into programming to solve sp- specific sorts of problems that I hadn't really realized existed until I got to college I was sort of a math phobe until uh, uh, first year statistics class and after years of uh, imploring math teachers to tell me what this was good for, <laughs> which got nothing but uh, pats on the head. Uh, I, you got pats on the head? I got, some, I got some. <laughs> well, I got some. Um, some of them were, were rougher than others. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I had this fantastic t- statistics class, which basically said that you can use math to predict and manipulate the world around you. And if anybody had said that to me when I was 12 years old, my right. life would probably be totally different. Um, and so I picked up Perl, uh, 
basically graduating pretty quickly from Excel just as a way to organize information. Um, my college career, I, I, look at, I look back on it now, what value I got out of it was really more about socialization than any particular academic focus. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I actually put Pearl to any real academic ends, uh, but it was useful when I got to Apple a couple of years later. Um, well, tell us about how you got to Apple from... Which is, uh, even even though the 90s were the beleaguered era, it was still a lot of kids' dream to go work at Apple. It was. I didn't I didn't quite understand how beleaguered it was until mm -hmm. some years later when... That's you the beauty could, of kids. They, they mm -hmm. have no idea. It, it was a great deal. Um, so, uh, as it happens, Tim Holmes was working at Apple a couple of years after I had last seen him at BMUG. He was the Mac OS evangelist. And we had kept in some touch. Uh, we, we both pretty much moved on from BMUG at that time. But uh, I wound up basically just knocking on his door and asking if there was any possibility of an internship. And he and, set and one right up. And was he a up. developer evangelist? Was that... Yeah, he he okay. was he was the Mac OS evangelist, okay. which okay. at the time meant, of course, Everything Mac, Mac OS nine because okay. OS ten yeah. was in development. Um, but uh, it had its own evangelist, but it was basically a research project still right. at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, this is ninety seven, probably when I made the inquiry, and ninety eight when it uh, right. finally happened. Right after the return of Steve Jobs, but before that looked like a success. The iMac words. existed at the time that I got there. Mm -hmm. um, it was only a few months old. It was still controversial because yeah. uh, it didn't have a floppy drive. Yeah. People uh, yeah. were still... Yeah. USB, ADB blue. went away. Yeah. ADB, <laughs> yeah, yeah. USB was new and shiny yeah. uh, for a while. It felt like the only computer on the market that had it. Um, so yeah, very early in whatever sort of renaissance was being plotted. Um, I did get to go to a couple of WWDCs in the late 90s, back when it was still at the, uh, the San Jose Convention Center met a bunch of the uh, the next guys at the peak of their brashness. <laughs> <laughs> um, ne by next guys, do you mean uh, outside developers or people from Next now working I mean, pe at Apple? I mean, people from Next now and then, then working at Apple. Uh -huh. um, yeah, it was still a culture clash at that point. Um, how, how did it look to you that the cultures were different? From my perspective as a, a, a Mac guy, or really as an Apple guy, um, I was concerned that I didn't fully understand what Next brought to the table. Um, you know, I had a, a Rhapsody machine on my desk, which was a curiosity mm -hmm. at, at best. It had a web browser that, that uh, I couldn't get much out of, um, and it, yeah, it, it it didn't. It didn't do much that I valued from a Mac, and it didn't mm -hmm. have anywhere near the the visual appeal or the performance of the the actual late '90s Mac on my desk, which says something. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I was in an audience. I think it was, must must have been like WWDC 08 or 08, 1998. Um, when the announcement was made that they were going, that they, it was basically a reversal of course, that they were going to ship the terminal as part of the, the base OS instead mm -hmm. of part mm -hmm. of the, the developer tools add-on. So it, the terminal was going to be available to every user of Mac OS X. And I was kind of horrified. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, no kidding. Like I, I mean, I'd, I'd 
done, I was familiar as a user of Unix uh, from school, um, and I was fairly comfortable with it. But I was pretty well convinced, I would have bet a substantial sum, that if developers had the ability to force people to edit preferences files in text, <laughs> right. why would they create a preferences window? Right. <laughs> and I really saw including the terminal in what was going to be OS X uh, as a serious error. And it was the kind of thing that the next guys, of course, loved. Right. Couldn't imagine not mm. having it. Couldn't right. imagine right. not sure. having it. It would have crippled the system mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. they, that, that they were there to mm. push. Um, and that took a while for me to come around. Um, right. I, I feel like Thankfully, my fears were unfounded. Um, because of money. Because your app's not going to sell if you make people edit <laughs> right. their preferences right. using uh, VI on the command line. And I think what I was afraid of is that that would just become the new normal. Yeah. And, right. and yeah. that there wouldn't be, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have stalwarts like BBEdit, which I'd been using since it was on an SE30, right. mm -hmm. uh, to hold up standards. Right. When uh, at that time, when we were still doing the previews of uh, Mac OS X, and I can't remember exactly what stage it was, but it hadn't really shipped to consumers yet. I was at Adobe, and Apple came and brought some machines to show off to us. This was at the point, do you guys remember when the Apple was in the middle of the menu bar? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So, was so whatever that phase was, I can't choice, remember yeah. what that was. And so here we are, and uh, it's a bunch of developers in my group, and so we walk in, and I find the Mac, and... I don't know why. Somehow I saw the terminal and like I launched the terminal and I'm trying out some Unix stuff and whoever it was that was chaperoning the machines from Apple was like, "You guys are clearly programmers. You walk in here and launch the terminal yeah, first thing." So yeah. I think he must have been from the Apple side of things that was uh -huh. like still surprised that you know the terminal was like front front and center in that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, I'm kind of excited by this. This is weird, like just from my day to day work kind of thing. Yeah. What did you? So you said you did Perl. What did you use to do your Perl uh, on the Mac? And did you use MPW or? Uh, I pretty much skipped MPW. I used Mac Perl okay. back in the OS nine days. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was always weird, though, the kind of like hacks you had to do since you didn't have at the terminal. It was weird, but it was really well done. Yeah, it was. It was, it, it was mm -hmm. a nice environment for mm -hmm. the time. Okay. Um, the lead developer, I think, is still at Apple. He's gone on to do a lot of speech work. Um, mm -hmm. Matthias. Nuriker, I believe. Yeah, and didn't he work on latent semantic mapping? That as well? rings a bell. Yeah, that have. sounds right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had Mac Pearl for a number of years before OS X, and I, I mean, much as I was afraid of how developers were going to treat the ubiquity of the terminal, I was certainly happy to take advantage of it right, on my sure. own. And um, BB Edit, you know, as soon as it existed on OS X, was reaching deeply into the into the firmament mm -hmm. um, and not having to use Mac Pearl was even better than Mac Pearl. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. That, that was my, really my main programming language for uh, a number of years. Um, well, and that was really like uh, almost the native language of the, of the internet. It was, mm -hmm. it was, it was. So it was like, that's hard to Pearl. express these days. Yeah. Yeah. We um, even had at Adobe, we had a number of tools that were written in Pearl that were part of our build process and other things mm -hmm. uh, when we, before OS 10 on the classic Mac yeah. we use little utilities and things like that. Yeah, reg regular expressions were my bread and butter for a long time. Yeah. I still can't do regular expressions. Yeah, I can't yeah. either. I try. Yeah. <laughs> I get sorted down the road and then forget everything. 
start over again a year later when I need it again. The uh, the O'Reilly title that Jeffrey Friedel wrote uh, is still maybe my favorite technical book of all time. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, I read it cover to cover on a road trip uh, sometime in the 90s, and uh, it was just magic. So that book is still in print. I, uh, yeah. It doesn't I, change much, really, I guess. It, right? it, it's changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, you can do some... You, you can certainly take regular expressions a lot further than I've ever felt the need to, but uh, it, it's still a, a, a valuable tool in the arsenal. Yeah, believe it. So what were you doing when you did that internship at Apple? The first half, about six months, um, I was doing a study on developer seating, um, which at the time was still based on the monthly CD-ROM mailings. Um, That was the the workhorse of how Apple shipped stuff to developers. Um, And this was right at the dawn of OS X, and you could just barely imagine a future in which people's home or business internet connections were going to be fast enough that they could pull down an operating system seed mm-hmm. electronically. It was it was sort of like science fiction. Like you could sort of see it coming. You knew it was going to happen eventually, but it was totally outlandish to actually right. plan on it. Yeah. Um, and I wish I – I don't think I ever – I kept a copy of the report that I did. But it was basically predicting or anticipating that future mm-hmm. that it was – going to become a reality quicker than even I thought when I started the thing. Um, and it was something that, that Apple ought to embrace. Um, I was working with uh, a little team in developer relations that was building uh, what became connect.apple.com, which was the website that uh, they used for the better part of a decade for basically managing assets connected to your mm-hmm. ADC account, your right. WWDC ticket, your support incidents. Right. Your hardware discount. Your, oh, the hardware oh, discount. Yeah. Man, do I miss that. <laughs> um, and I could see that as you know an, an element of uh, what the future was going to hold for, for seeding to developers. Um, in retrospect, I have no idea how I spent six months on this project. It was... <laughs> It was sort of like uh, that Simpsons episode where Homer's running around in the chocolate fairyland and just taking bites out of everything. (laughs) Um, It was a a fairly magical time and one of the the few times in my life where I can remember really just wanting to do nothing all day except work. (laughs) And it wasn't, you know, it was not labor intensive. Uh, It was well paid relative to anything I'd ever done before. Um, And working in developer relations gave me some insight into what felt like the whole company. Uh, mm-hmm. It was not nearly right. as, oh, sure. as locked down as it's become in the decade or so since. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't figure out how they could justify the, uh, the like, basically every other week there'd be a, a big party in the center of Infinite Loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, I, I can't possibly calculate how much this costs the company uh, to do. What was the attitude like in Apple during that time? Was there optimism or were people excited? A lot of this overlapped with the uh, the Microsoft case. So the Department of Justice was, right, was cracking yeah. down. Mm-hmm. And that made for some high-quality Schadenfreude. <laughs> oh, I bet, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. I, 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 I remember enjoying the hell out of that myself. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was a, it was a nice time to be alive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had Macintosh as my homepage and probably spent... Ah, Rick Ford, yeah. Mm-hmm. Close to an hour a day just, uh, just following the intrigue. I got in trouble uh, at Adobe during that time because uh, NPR sent someone in between, the, like the two buildings I was walking between waiting to catch developers. And uh, they're like, you talk about the Microsoft thing? I was like, sure, I'll talk about <laughs> it. Yeah, they're absolutely guilty. This is ter-. And then I get this phone call and email like, we do not do that. Only the executive team comments on any of these things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a bunch of trouble. It's like, oh, well, I didn't really say I was representing Adobe. They're like, eh. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I yeah. probably would have fallen for the, the, the same thing. Um, so that was... That was certainly a factor in the the mood of the company, insofar as I so was. it looked like it looked like even that Microsoft could end up breaking up in some way. I in thought those that days. was a, a realistic yeah, possibility. Right? Yeah, yeah. What an interesting, different universe that would have been if you know really just at their height of success and malevolence they had been split into into pieces. Right. Maybe there'd be a game division that was super successful. <laughs> could be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember I when when they made that investment in Apple, um, and I remember being. Yeah, it wasn't too long after Jobs came back, right? Yeah. yeah, I want to say ninety eight. Um, yeah. And I remember. Million. Yeah, it, and I remember thinking it was it was equivalent to about eight days of revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so the the mood in the company certainly the way I felt at the time was, I don't understand how this is being pitched as such a lifeline yeah. that, yeah. I mean, who, who did they save by, by giving Apple an additional eight days of revenue? It was far more important that they committed to keeping right. Office alive. Right. It seemed yeah, like some sure. token gesture more than, you know, necessary for the survival of the company. But I think in retrospect, everyone you see who comments about it these days is all like, it was Microsoft's money that floated Apple. And you're just thinking, the numbers don't add up, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I was, in retrospect, sort of happy to see that it, convinced people that the company was not going away, which yeah. I and perhaps my foolishness had never doubted. Um, but uh, yeah, from the inside, I couldn't couldn't fathom how this was the conventional wisdom that was playing right. out. Right. Totally believe that. You know, at Adobe at the time, I was the same as you. I was surrounded by Macs everywhere all day long. I'm like, there can't be a problem. We're all using Macs. Everyone's using mm. Macs. They got to be making money. This can't be a problem. They were expensive too. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, I think basically Apple was $250 million away from being bankrupt and shutting its doors. And it may not sound like a lot, um, but they did actually really need that money. I'm, I'm sure it didn't hurt. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, so funny. $250 million is not very much. They, they, can't almost even, certainly, they can't deal with their money now. Yeah, right? I mean, they, they've made more than that while we've been sitting here talking. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe. I, I didn't think we would ever be at this yeah. spot. Like, yeah, no. I, I certainly did not yeah. anticipate. I just saw that thing. Uh, There's a story maybe a year or so ago that if you had bought the the sleek black PowerBook G3 at the time that it was introduced, which I believe cost about five grand, and put it into Apple stock, it would have turned into well north of a million dollars in the last <laughs> no, couple of years. Wow. That was a good laptop, but I would have made that trade. Yeah, two batteries. <laughs> yeah. That was a great laptop. I'm not even sure where mine is anymore. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Those were a sweet, sweet little spot in the Apple's laptop history, right there. I mean, nothing compared to what we have today, but very nice. I, I look back on it fondly. 
So after the um, uh, the seeding um, research that they did, what what was next at Developer Relations? I basically looked around for a way to to extend my stay uh, and wound up. Uh, I didn't actually move my desk, but I sort of changed my uh, manager and wound up working on a FileMaker database that developer relations used at the time to manage uh, basically contacts and I believe events for the the evangelism team. I don't think they were actually calling them evangelists at the time. They were the relationship managers and partnership mm -hmm. managers. Steve had, had temporarily put a kibosh on evangelism as a, as a term of art. Um, but yeah, there were a couple hundred people there who, uh, you know, roughly half devoted to technologies and half devoted to, to large companies that they needed to keep happy. Like, uh, Adobe was usually first on people's minds. Um, and there was no good system level technology to keep that information organized. So, um, they had built a, what seemed to me at the time to be a very large FileMaker-based system that had you know offline features and you could add data to it while you were on the road and sync it back up again when you got back to some place with internet access. Mm -hmm. um, and I basically kept it running. I don't recall that I did a whole lot to improve it. I uh, knew little about FileMaker when I started and quite a lot more by the time uh, my time came to an end seven or eight months later. Um, yeah, it, it was really just keeping a foot in the door, and this was a useful thing I could do while uh, while I still have a chance. So, a uh, history digression for our for our listeners: FileMaker is basically an Apple product, right? Because it came out of Claris, yeah. mm -hmm. which was which came out of Apple. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And so, I don't remember the exact details. But I feel it, like there was a bouncing back and forth between Claris. Yeah, and I can't remember yeah. whether right? whether Claris had been spun off at the yeah. time that yeah. I was still there. If it had, it was still very much treated as a a subsidiary, which right, is really right. effectively what it was. Um, yeah, and um, the closest modern analog is still, I think, uh, Microsoft Access. It's yeah. just a, a, a friendlier-than-usual database that uh, you can interact with in a more or less graphical sense, and right. you can build some uh, incredible things with it. Uh, they're not necessarily, it's not necessarily built for you to build incredible things with it, but it can be done. Right. So what's the current what's the current actual descent? Because there is a product, uh, Bento. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They kind of even more simplified, right? And kinda. is what's the name of the company? Is it is FileMaker? It is it FileMaker? It's either FileMaker or Bento, I think. But yeah, that's yeah. Uh, but FileMaker is basically was is the renamed Claris. Yeah. Which is spun out of Apple, and FileMaker is now Bento. Okay. Does FileMaker still exist as a There's product? There's FileMaker.com, so I'm going to say uh, that's the name that they went with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And still iPad app even, right? Yeah. No, yeah. That's great. So uh, FileMaker was so ubiquitous that uh, what I was doing around the time you were in Apple Developer Relations, uh, I was working on um, server-side programming on Macs, um, pre-OS 10. So it would be, you know, uh, actual HTTP server running on Mac OS 8 or whatever. And to connect it to a database, the database would be FileMaker Pro. And you would you would have some script that talked to it via Apple events. I remember you know, this. Run a search or add a, you know, add to it or delete from it or do whatever you know. And but it was insane because you could sit and watch the machine, watch the screen. You know, FileMaker would mm -hmm. the UI would even respond to things. Yep. You know, to scripted 
bits. And Did you everything. also have it wired up to a telephone so you could reboot it remotely wow. <laughs> and it eventually <laughs> crashed? <laughs> I had um, I had a little extension that would automatically reboot my yep, Mac when, when it crashed. Huh. I, I really did have a thing that um, maybe Farallon or someone made that you could call, and if, if it rang, it would detect the ring and reboot mm. the machine for uh, – we had like a file transfer server. I don't even remember what we used. Maybe it was an FTP server uh, when I worked for my grandfather's print shop so people could deliver files to us. And it would occasionally lock up or crash or something. And if that yep. happened, I could just call the phone number and it would reboot the Mac. That sounds like an amazing piece of progress that I, yep. I ne- never even occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that happened a lot in the publishing world um, yep. because – there was even a client that we had when I was at Rogue Sheep who had a piece of software that looked for a particular dialogue box to come up that was like an error dialogue and would fake the click on it to dismiss oh, it right. because that was the only way to automate this one particular part of the printing. Well, I used to have an extension that that did something like that, but it would automatically click OK or whatever on yep. anything. Yeah, that just came OK. Up, just whatever. Just OK, <laughs> the, fine. The OK smasher. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, once it came up, the machine would stop. So if you yeah. have an HTTP server yeah. running, it's not accepting any <laughs> right. connections because right. you've got a dialog box. Right. I'm increasingly trying to build stuff like that for iOS these days yeah. in, in, in service of testing goals. Oh, yeah, it's, I uh, see that. I, I, there's no phone involved, but aside from that, right? funny how these things resurface. Yeah, really, right? Wait a minute. The iPhone is a phone. <laughs> you can call it. It's a great you idea. You could totally call it. We should figure out how to make this work. <laughs> totally hadn't occurred to me. You can, run a, you can run a web server off your iPhone now. That would be great. Where's Chuck Shotton when you need him? Yeah, Chuck. Yeah, that's what I. That's, that was my thing. Webstar, Chuck Shotton's awesome thing. Originally Mac HTTP, HTTP the Webstar, then sold to, what, Star 9, and then to Quarter Deck, oh, and then yeah. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Then OS X came out, and we just switched to Apache. I think I met him at uh, Macworld sometime in the early 90s, and I was one of the probably tens of thousands of people to ask him how many hits per hour uh, Mac HTTP could handle. And he very patiently explained to me that that was a stupid metric. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) What metric was not stupid would would have been my next question. I really wish I could remember that conversation better. Yeah. Well, then what, what metric should we use? You know, it might have, I might have actually gotten that story exactly backwards. He, I, I might have been asking how many users could it handle mm-hmm. per oh, hour. Right. And he now said, that's... no, actually, you want to you mm-hmm. think about hits. Yeah, right. sure. So yeah. Sorry, to, sorry, sorry, Mr. Shotton, to have <laughs> stepped on your legacy there. You know, he had that thing um, performing pretty darn well. But the one thing he couldn't, he couldn't never match the Unix machines was – at least in my memory, was latency. Yeah, There was always just like some small delay, but mm-hmm. just enough that you knew this wasn't coming off Apache somewhere. It was being served from a Mac. At the time, I'm pretty sure my uh, sensitivities were not so refined as to, because you know, it was probably, at the time I was using Mac, Mac HTTP, it was the only thing I was using. So yeah, sure. It's all OpenTransport's fault, man. Blissful yeah. ignorance. <laughs> well, before it, what was before Open Transport? It was I just. I cannot remember now. Uh, just sockets? Something horrible. Yeah. Or like, something horrible. Maybe it was something horrible. Yeah. Yeah, and Open Transport, stream based, which still runs in OS X. No I, kidding. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. It's long deprecated. Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't think you could. I don't think you could write a project using Xcode 4 that in any way, mm-hmm. you know, used 
But if you could get Xcode 3 running, you probably could if you had the old SDK. Yeah. Wow. We, we, we've got a VM with it running just in case <laughs> the, the need emerges. At least you can have a VM now. <laughs> that yeah. makes it a little easier. <laughs> well, I'd like to pause for a moment and thank, uh, once again, Azure Mobile Services for sponsoring this entire season of The Record. And you can learn more uh, by going to azure.microsoft.com slash iOS. And you'll see a video there. Um, you'll see some videos there by me telling you how to get started, some instructional stuff, but also a brand new video called Learn How Vesper Built Offline Sync Using Mobile Services. So we hadn't actually announced that we're using mobile services. Maybe you'd guess because they've been a sponsor here. Uh, and I've talked about them on my blog a little bit. But um, uh, my coworkers, John Gruber, Dave Wiskus, and I went to Build Conference, Microsoft's developer conference in San Francisco, uh, just last week. And we had a video that was there in the keynote on day two, which was Cloud Day, Azure Day. And uh, it talked about how we're using Azure Mobile Services for, for uh, doing syncing for our app Vesper. And yeah, we totally are. It's totally cool. Uh, I really like that they changed the name from uh, Win Windows Azure to uh, Microsoft Azure uh, because it has nothing to, to do with Windows. I'm writing in um, that old, wonderful text editor, bbedit. I'm using terminal.app, writing JavaScript. I, am, you know, I don't even own uh, a Windows license of any kind. So I'm doing all, all my development is, is Mac-based, and I'm you know, working on iOS apps. Uh, but the back end happens to be by Microsoft. And we chose it because it um, it uses you know a lot of the open source technologies that are not not uh, foreign to a Mac guy like me, uh, but yet they've also built some really nice high level stuff to make all kinds of things really really easy, and uh, we appreciate that a ton. It makes my job simpler, it makes it so I can sleep at night, uh, makes it more likely I'm gonna um, do some really great work and. Uh, and delight our users, which is the entire name of the game. Let's go to azure.microsoft.com slash iOS and check out all these videos and, you know, see what you think. I think it's pretty cool. That's why we're using it. Anyway, let's get back to Nat. So you're on FileMaker stuff. That was a long uh, digression. Uh, on FileMaker stuff at Apple. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, keeping, keeping my hand in. Um, uh -huh. And... The, the way of the future at the time seemed clearly to be web objects. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were people working on adjacent teams who were building stuff in web objects. And uh, at the time, the controversy in web objects was whether um, it was going to switch from the classic C style to mm -hmm. the obvious way of the future with uh, Java. Um, and nobody... At Apple was really all that interested in uh, ripping out existing code and replacing it mm -hmm. with identical code that happened to run in Java, which at the time I found puzzling. But later I came to realize that there was absolutely no reason to uh, to want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think at the time I was basically just sort of looking for an excuse not to learn C, and Java struck me as a more approachable challenge. Um, but as well, it at the out, time, it looked like C was 
on its way out. It right. did. Know, Java it, was going it, to mm-hmm. dominate that, all. That, that, was, yeah. that was exactly why I was, mm-hmm. well, that was part of why I was uh, uninterested in learning C is because I figured it, uh, the, the writing was on the wall. And one of the ways that the next guys rubbed me the wrong way was their unabashed championing of C, which mm-hmm. I, at the time I don't even recall hearing Objective-C as a, as a variant mm-hmm. or, or spelled out. But um, certainly features of it were, I remember uh, Bill Bumgarner uh, scoffing at the idea of using Java without categories, <laughs> as the, the the word existed in in Java, but it meant something totally different than uh-huh. Objective C. Um, and when Bill scoffs, yeah, yeah, people listen. listen. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it 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 was it was thunderous, mm-hmm. thunderous scoffing. <laughs> So did Apple do a lot of uh, promotion internally of web objects uh, to try to get people to, to adopt it? For I don't really recall concern? promotion. It was just sort of the tool that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were going to build a web-facing thing, you were why, why would you use something other than web objects? Right, it's right. madness. Um, and the people that I was working with already knew it. There was, really wasn't much of a learning curve to deal with. Um, and so at the time that I, my time at Apple was coming to an end, um, it just seemed like the obvious next thing right. that I should go and learn. Um, this sort of uh, presaged the major problem with my later consulting career is that I, it's not like I had any people beating down my door who wanted things built in web objects. Mm-hmm. It just struck me as that if I learned it, then that, that I would find them. That would be the tool, right? Um, and as I left Apple and transitioned into a consulting career, uh, it led to what, what I failed uh, to, a much really bumpier consulting it. career than I anticipated is that um, wanting to learn web objects didn't lead to consultant to, to clients who wanted to pay me to do web objects things for them. So uh, you, after you you left Apple, you think that web objects is the obvious uh, course to take as you're becoming a consultant, yeah, and I, that everyone's using it. Surely there's a lot of work. Um, that's what you're going to uh, go into. But then you discover that you have to actually get clients, and that's a little bit different than just learning a new technology. It, it may well be that there was a lot of work. There just wasn't a lot of work uh, where I was living in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, and I proved it, it, it proved difficult to put myself out there to the point that if there, if there was work to be had, that any of it would find me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just you at this time? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I was uh, all, all, I was going to say independent, but that... Uh, leads to associations of more success than I ever actually enjoyed. <laughs> um, yeah, all, all me, all, all by myself, basically for uh, five, six years until I uh, wound up taking the job at The Stranger. Um, five or six years sounds like some success, if you... It was enough success not to starve. Right. Uh, I had a couple of uh, clients who had sort of occasional work that they needed done, uh, everything from a uh, little bit of training, some uh, repair in Perl or Java-based systems, mm-hmm. uh, database work, some you know the occasional new project that uh, you know generally a, like a web design firm needed contracted out that involved some moving parts. Um, was never. I didn't realize how bad at it I was until I started doing something else, or I would have I would have changed course a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in retrospect, that would have been oh my god, the smart thing to do. Um, 
but I was reasonably happy because I had a ton of time that I could just spend learning about stuff that appealed to me, uh, right. yeah. which Great. was pretty close to what I wanted to do at the time. Um, so I, I picked up some cocoa, enough to be dangerous, um, never actually uh, shipped any of the ideas that I kicked around. Um, I think the one that came closest to fruition was a tool to uh, simplify the care and feeding of SSH tunnels on the Mac, mm -hmm. um, which still seems like something that I would you – know, there are a few tools out there to do it now, um, which are all uh, – they have a few more buttons and knobs than than anything I had envisioned at the time. But since I never shipped mine, I'm not in a good position to criticize theirs. You should do it because I'm always completely confused by these things. <laughs> it, like the few times I end up having to use them, it's like a, a long, long process till I finally have it all working. It'd be a lot easier now, but I, in, I I'm I'm recapitulating my own fear from the late '90s, in which I, I'd really just send you a, a shell command and expect you to <laughs> yeah, make yeah. do. Get the terminal. Yeah. It's good enough. Go on. Um, so I learned a lot uh, and didn't actually employ most of that knowledge for quite a long time. Um, I had a uh, – so I moved to Washington in 2000 uh, and actually landed in Redmond living with some friends from college. Um, and I picked Washington really because I was tired of I, – I, it was the middle of summer on the East Coast, and I, I remember I was immersing my hands in ice water <laughs> up, up to the wrists every 20 minutes because it was the only way I could maintain a train of thought. And after doing this for you know a, a week, it, the, this would have been the summer of 99, I realized that I didn't have to live there, and I couldn't think of any reason why living there really benefited me. Um, so I just wanted to go someplace that had cloud cover. Uh, you found yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I picked it. I, this was this was a conscious choice. So I had a, uh, some friends from school who were living in Redmond, and I thought Redmond was way closer to Seattle than it actually turned out to be. Um, so I uh, made the decision that I was going to get out of the get out of Massachusetts. I landed here in I think uh, May or so of two thousand. Um, and then discovered that Redmond is actually quite a haul from mm, the yeah. nearest real city center. I was out there once recently. I'm like, where the hell was I? <laughs> I have no idea. It's a it's it's a very strange place. And it costs uh, like a thousand dollars to go across the bridge. At the time, it didn't. Okay. At the time, it was these free. Days it does. Is there these, less these, traffic on the bridge now? Not that I noticed. Yeah, uh, that's too bad. It's kind of but it like I, you know, I go across what once every five years. Right. I, no if, if you're not going at rush hour, I think yeah. you're in pretty good shape. Um, so I'm living in Redmond and still consulting. Um, would continue to do so for I me. Mean, this was really closer to the beginning than the end of that period. Um, did have to learn to drive because uh, Tim Iman was just starting to, <laughs> to kneecap the uh, King County transit system through his uh, uh, anti-tax populism. I hate um, that guy so much. Yeah, he, he, keep, he keeps coming up. Yeah. Um, I wish he would just get a regular job and make some money. And seriously. Yeah. All right. I, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd sign an initiative to force him to do that. Yeah, I totally would. Yeah. <laughs> I'll um, sign that to, to make a move to another state or something at least. Yeah. He'd be much happier in Idaho or yeah, totally. Wyoming. 
It's I mean, there's all these states already like tailor made for him. Why does he have to mess with my state? Right, right after I moved here, um, I remember the the 2000 election. I was really impressed that Maria Cantwell won her Senate seat. Um, and Washington has 30 odd counties. Remember how many counties she won? I don't mm. recall. Two. That's all. There was, there was King, King and Pierce. King and Pierce, I, I believe. It's definitely the King. One, 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 <laughs> one, one of the Kimmy. She didn't actually need Pierce's. Um, <laughs> the people are. It, it was still in like a two thousand vote margin, but it it illustrated to me the the political reality of Washington state politics, which mm-hmm. is King County is really uh, hard to do without, um, and really it's the only part of Washington that I have any affection for. Right. There was a, still some sort of a plan at the time to. Uh, to let to to allow the eastern half to secede, uh, and I want to say that they were trying to call it Columbia, which seemed like the absolute most maximally confusing name you could think of for the fifty first <laughs> state of the union. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, would would that they have been able to get away with it? I think Tim Hyman would have been a lot happier. They could have called it I Mania. <laughs> it would become a very poor state. Um, yeah, it would mostly relying on government handouts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, stayed in Redmond for about a year and a half, uh, then moved to Shoreline, which I also thought was much closer to Seattle mm-hmm. than it really was. I didn't really plan any of these things very well. Um, You're inching closer though. I, yeah, yeah. I, it, yeah. it was, it was moving in the right direction. It was sort of a spiral. Um, <laughs> and, uh, stayed there for a year or so. And then I finally, uh, landed on Queen Anne. Which was in, now you're in Seattle. Queen well, Anne, I was yeah. I was I was in Seattle. I was definitely you know within the boundaries, but Queen Anne was weirdly still sort of seems weirdly cut off from the city to me. Like you've mm-hmm. really got to kind of work to get off of Queen Anne. Yeah, sure. Um, well, a lot of neighborhoods are like that. I mean, they can mm-hmm. be self-contained. Ballard, where I live, is just like you could live a whole life in Ballard and never go anywhere else. Ballard is another good example. Yeah. Um, but uh, Magnolia, even worse, because. Unfortunately, with Magnolia, there's not like as much stuff. Unfortunately, it's just houses. I, I, I've I've never actually been to Magnolia. Oh, well, it's right next door to. Queen it's Anne. right next door, but I've <laughs> I've never had any reason to go there. You should for, go to Discovery Park. For a while, yeah. I was under the impression that Magnolia was just a, a large land-based retirement community. That's that is, yeah, actually, it is. Yeah. And so I I never had any reason yeah. to visit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I lived there for a little while and moved to Capitol Hill shortly before uh, applying for the the job at The Stranger, which uh, was it's really the, the chunk of Seattle that I liked the best. Um, and I'd probably still live there if uh, I wasn't now working on Queen Anne, mm-hmm. which I wasn't <laughs> at the time. When I lived here last, uh, it was actually the, the trip to the stint of living on Queen Anne the first time coincided with one of the few times that I decided I was going to try to go and get a regular job and uh, uh, do computer stuff sort of in the evening and not have to make it pay for itself. And so I wound up delivering pizzas for about three months. Wow. <laughs> cool. Nice. Pagliacci? Pagliacci. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 and, and so what years was this? This would have been like, well, not years, thank God. Yeah, uh, right. It was, well, it was yeah, I mean, more yeah. like weeks. Um, it would have been <laughs> 03. 03. I was already in Ballard. I don't think we were getting from the Queen Anne Pagliacci where I lived. Oh, and I was, right. I was in Sandpoint anyway. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I did that for about three and that's, a half months. I think that's the one that delivered to my house, though. Oh, yeah? Actually, yeah. I, de- I delivered it. <laughs> absolutely the highlight of that job was delivering a pizza to Gary Larson, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. sweet. which was incredible. I, did, I didn't even know he lived in the area until I was standing at his gate. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Handing him a, a, a pizza in a box. And did he have cows that. or chickens or anything? <laughs> what, what stands out about the experience was his long Dumbledore-esque beard, as I recall, <laughs> and the fact that he gave me a $10 tip. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah, sure. That's fantastic. Hands down, the best experience of that. Kids uh, these days may not know Gary Larson, uh, author of The Far Side, which is yeah pivotal in, in all our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very important stuff. My mom used to work at the Academy of Sciences in... Uh, San Francisco, and they had a permanent far side exhibit. Uh, and so for a year or so in elementary school, I basically hang out there for an hour or so in the afternoon after coming coming back from school to go there. And I just stared at those far side cartoons, the same ones. Mm-hmm. They didn't change, but you could just walk around this very large room peppered with far sides and, That's and cool. contemplate them. It was magical. <laughs> um, so yeah, after a few months of delivering pizzas, uh, I fell down and uh, I believe there was some wet grass involved and did something appalling to my ankle and uh, got to learn about the uh, Washington State Labor and Industries Workman's Comp (laughs) policy, which which served me fairly well. I I wound up seeing some sort of sports medicine doctor at uh, Virginia Mason and they patched me up and I went back to work for, uh, I want to say, about a week and a half, and then uh, I was told that my services were no longer required because of my lack of hustle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember being a little upset, like, oh, well, shoot, what am I going to do next? But I was fairly confident that there was going to be something that came next, and uh, I just needed to figure out what that was going right. to be. Um, the only real project that I remember from those days I had this idea that I actually pitched to the stranger a few years before I wound up working there. Um, I I was basically envisioning a, a better way to manage and disseminate information about live music, which mm. you know this isn't hardly a, a unique idea. But um, at the time that I was doing it, I want to say it was like two thousand one, two thousand two. There weren't there there were not a ton of options out there. Mm. Um, Certainly nothing along the lines of, you know, upcoming.org, um, which was a, a much grander idea than what I had. But I, I was basically just envisioning that you had outlets like The Stranger, uh, which were doing a huge amount of rote copying and pasting of a huge amount of information about who's going to be performing at what venues every damn day. Um, why not give the artists the ability to give you that information themselves mm, mm. and then feed it out to people and you know you can let them tell you what their favorite artists are and you'll tell them when those people are going to be in town right. um, and it I, I built a prototype and I tried to get it in the door and this was yet another example of my not having any idea how to really sell myself or uh, an idea to people who weren't already convinced that they needed that mm-hmm. um, and already convinced that they needed me to do it um, and that was really the hardest that I ever worked at it. And I, boy, in retrospect, I just did not know what I was doing. <laughs> and by the time I actually started working at The Stranger, no one remembered that I had done this. Wow. Um, and I never mentioned it. <laughs> did, did we describe what The Stranger is? Uh, briefly, they're uh, 
alternative weekly here in Seattle. Um, uh, initially, uh, initially print only because it really started in what the early nineties or something mm-hmm. quite a while ago. They um, had a website as late as the late nineties. It was pretty rudimentary okay. for a while. Yeah. Um, but by the time, like the reason that I approached them with it uh, was because of the two alt weeklies in town, they were by far the cooler one. The other one was part of the, but uh, at the time was the New Times chain and later merged with slash acquired the Village Voice mm-hmm. and its family of papers. Um, but in addition to being the, the cooler of the two options, they they just seem a lot more plugged into both uh, the local music communities and they had a, a better online story. Um, mm-hmm. I think they were still a couple of years away from putting together a, a, a pretty great daily blog, um, but that was clearly the direction that they were going. So people from outside of Seattle will may recognize the name Dan Savage. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's a columnist at the, at the Stranger. And, uh, yes, and a, a widely syndicated sex columnist in Alt mm-hmm. Weekly's uh, and some, you know, other web venues. Um, but he's the strangers. He, yeah, he's the. For a while, he was the editor, and I think he got promoted a couple of years before I left to some sort of more nebulous executive editor role. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he's, they he's, just pay him to have the name on sure the masthead right now. It's but. money well spent. <laughs> he's, yeah, uh, he's, sure. a, he's a hell yeah. of a writer. Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, the stranger. Going back in my memory, in the eighties, what we had was a. Uh, magazine or newspaper called The Rocket. Right. right. The Rocket was amazing. And it was, yeah, you know, it was mostly music and comics and, and stuff. And I think it came out monthly. But it published, um, it published Linda Berry and Life in Hell. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Way, way back when. And so we, you know, New Rocket's out. So that meant New Life in Hell is out. And this is before The Simpsons, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it would have been not that long after. Matt Groening graduated from Evergreen State College in mm. Olympia, and Linda Berry too, actually. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I, Stranger way cooler than the Weekly for one thing, which was a, a damn sight. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Stranger's still going strong Str- today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, they they sort of moved over into uh, local ticket sales, mm-hmm. and when when competing with Ticketmaster is the smart economic move your main bread and butter business is probably not in great shape. But um, <laughs> yeah, for a newspaper, they're uh, they're on, still quote-unquote thriving. Yeah. Right. And it's, you know, at the time that I worked there and now, it's always been a, a, a scrappy sort of seat-of-the-pants organization, which was a big part of the reason why I wanted to pitch them on this idea in the, the early aughts and why I wanted to work there Later that decade, mm-hmm. I think I started in 2006 or so. Mm-hmm. So we'll assume you didn't do any web objects at The Stranger. Zero. Uh, yeah. Although mm-hmm. I did do a, a little bit of FileMaker. They had uh, their their whole accounting system, everything that interacted with uh, money in any way, which included you know the sales department and uh, all, all the, the staff management was all in this gigantic FileMaker system that they had built themselves mm-hmm. over a period of a decade and a half, which made the system that I was responsible for at Apple look tiny <laughs> by comparison. And to their immense credit, I, I really had very little hand in uh, even maintaining it after I got there. It, it, As far as I know, it never really catastrophically failed, um, which given a FileMaker project of that scope is really impressive. Mm-hmm. 
probably a, a, a bit of luck and a lot of skill involved in being able to make that claim over that period of time. Did the stranger uh, deploy a lot of Macs? Were you mostly? Yeah, the reason that I uh, that I was a good fit for the job is that it was an all Mac mm -hmm. environment um, for the most part. I think there were like five PCs when I got there, and uh, by the time I left, there was they pretty much we 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 got rid of more or less one a year, and then the web department still had a couple of VMs mm -hmm. for for testing. But uh, yeah, it was it was and remains an all Mac shop. So uh, servers were Macs even, or how was that done? The in-house servers were. The, mm -hmm. the servers that powered the website um, and the blogs were all handled off-site, mm -hmm. um, all just Unix and um, custom content management mm -hmm. layered on top of that. Thankfully, I was not directly responsible for that aspect, or uh, I, I'd be bald, among other things. <laughs> <I bet. laughs> But yeah, it was uh, an, an all-Mac shop. There were really only two and then three people on the internal facing technology team. Um, so we all juggled a lot of jobs and responsibilities. Um, I was on a first-name basis with a number of people at the Seattle Apple Store because when you've got you know probably 100 or so employees between the Seattle and the Portland papers, um, mm -hmm slightly more than a hundred odd max. Uh, and when they failed in ways that we couldn't fix ourselves, uh, we'd, we'd drive them across town and make it Apple's problem. That's cool. This was a uh, university village Apple store. That yeah. You yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We kept hoping they'd set one up downtown and there were perennial rumors whenever some large, uh, retail outlet went out of business that, Oh, Apple's moving in. And that never it does seem kind of odd that there isn't one downtown. It now is that very you weird. It. Yeah. yeah. There's like no, no computer stuff downtown. Uh, there, there used to at least be like an egghead software right, or something. Right. When that sharper image went out of business, yeah, right. that was the, the peak, peak rumor as far as I could tell. Uh, and it turned into this gigantic AT&T store. Yeah, that's right. I don't yeah. know what they do with that much space. I've been in there a couple of times, which is never a, a, a fun experience. Yeah. But man, it's, it's sort of like uh, an Apple store designed by someone who read about them in a book. Yeah. <laughs> And it's just monstrous floor space, hmm. but they kept it. I mean, it's it. They're apparently satisfied. So you stayed at the Stranger for just short of five years. Just, just shy, yeah. And yeah. Uh, when I eventually left, uh, I thought I was going in to uh, for an annual review to argue for more money, and it turned out I was being laid off. Oh, uh, yeah, not enough hustle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they were. It was meeting with uh, with my boss and the, the publisher. The, uh, they were, in retrospect, very nice. This is all sort of a blur. Um, and I remember that the, the publisher said that, what was his exact words? It was um, that I was going to be a better fit for a larger company. And it, it was pretty clearly a, uh, a financially driven retrenchment because mm -hmm. I wasn't replaced with anyone. Okay. Um, they hired a few consultants to sort of bridge the, the immediate gap. Um, but a lot of the, the kind of work that I was doing, like I, I was constantly needling them. You know, we sh if we spend more money, we will mitigate these sets of risks. Sure, um, right. And my job was really identifying 
risks and then either preventing them from becoming problems or dealing with them after they became problems. Mm -hmm. um, and I had no shortage of ways that uh, we could that we could uh, attack the the universe of potential things that could catastrophically go wrong. Um, so I, th I think about that sometimes that that comment that I'd be happier working for a larger company uh, in that I was pretty fantastically lucky to wind up working for Black Pixel mm -hmm. only a couple of months later, which is a substantially smaller company. Yeah, right. But larger uh, in the sense that they can afford to pay you. Larger, <laughs> larger in the sense that they really care about the kind of risks that I had spent the previous half decade learning to worry about. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, I, I, I think of it sometimes as sort of changing sides, going from IT to QA, in that I had spent a long time figuring out how to prevent things from breaking, mm -hmm. and now I can really apply those them. talents to breaking yeah. them. How did you find the Black Pixel? How did that come to, to be where you pitched in your application? The, uh, the very same day of the layoff, I wound up going to Xcoders, because um, was, that was the day of the week that it was. Um, Is that the same time, same night Dave Weiner came out to Xcoders? I don't think it was, no. Okay. Um, but, like it was but around I'm, then. I don't know. I'm yeah. in a car with uh, a few people going from the the, the talk to the bar. Um, and uh, there was a guy from out of town sitting next to me, and he said, so what do you do? And I said, oh, actually, I, I'm, I'm newly, uh, newly freelance. And he said, oh, how long have you been doing that? And I said, oh, about uh, five hours. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm in a car with Paul Garaki, who uh, suggested, as I recall, really right off the bat that I talked to Dan Pascoe, mm -hmm. who I had you know, interacted with. I had met him at C4 a couple of years ago. Um, and I uh, pitched the possibility of doing some iPhone work, him, uh, Black Pixel doing some iPhone work for The Stranger, which never really panned out. But um, I was you know, aware of him and aware of the company. and. Uh, was I mean I'd, I'd I'd done some cocoa work for the stranger I was uh, not com completely incompetent but I was probably dangerous uh, and I figured I was at least months away from being in any kind of shape to talk about an iOS or, mm. or even really a Mac development job um, so I kind of discounted the recommendation um, but I think I did. Uh, there was an introduction made, which I think Paul probably initiated. Um, and Dan and I had some conversations in which I said, I, I really don't think I'm ready for this. Mm. Um, but they posted the QA job just a month or so later. Uh, and when that, I can't remember exactly how I came to see that, um, but that was a job that I was clearly ready for. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'm, I'm a little more comfortable being the be, being at the 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 high end of a job that I can do well, rather than sort of coming in as the the junior person in a job that I'm still working my way into. Sure, um, it's been an amazingly good fit, I think, from my perspective. And cool. uh, they 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 haven't let me go yet. <laughs> <laughs> they must like your hustle. Plenty of hustle. Yeah. Well, they're, they're hiring new QA people too. That's, they are indeed. Cool. We, so we, we are indeed. Um, hopefully by the time this airs, we'll have, uh, we'll have managed that. Um, and if that hasn't happened, go to blackpixel.com, look for the job listings. We are certainly happy to talk to you. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, 
that brings us about up to the iPhone, I do which is about so, where right? we cut yeah, off. So, yeah, I think um, this is pretty good to a wrapping up point, time-wise and everything, actually. Visit us on the web at therecord.tv slash season one. Now, you wonder if that's a O-N-E or the digit one, and either one will work because I'm going to put in a redirect, okay? So type whatever you want. Thank you, Nat, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you very much.